You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 8, verses 10 through 23. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that we can sing songs of prayer that are perhaps more true of what we long to be than are actually true of our heart. We long to be your people. We long to have you, Lord Jesus, be our vision. And so we pray now that you would through your word and by your spirit, fill up our eyes, our imaginations, our hearts, our longings. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back in this pulpit. It's good to see many of you, some who have just moved back to town, some Welshes are on their way through town. Jess, it's so great to hear your beautiful voice singing behind me on your way to Montgomery, Alabama. So, but it's so good. The summer is a weird time. People are moving, people are on vacation, people are passing through. Uh, I know I am so thankful for Jordan for preaching the past four Sundays, wherever he is. Thank you, brother. Uh, I know that he's learned a lot and benefited uh, from preaching four weeks in a row. I know that we all as a church have benefited under his ministry of the word to us. Um, But since this is such a weird time of travel, 
uh, such a weird time of interspersed attendance. Hopefully you have been keeping up with the, the podcast if you've been out of town, but let me just quickly catch us up to where we have been in this book of Joshua together. Uh, after delivering the people out of Egyptian slavery in the book of Exodus, God led the people up through the wilderness and on to the east side of the land where he had promised this land to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, like 500 years ago. And in Joshua 1, as the people are on the east side of the river Jordan, outside of the land in Joshua 1, God told Joshua over and over and over again to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid of the enemies of God who are now dwelling in the land, because why? Because I will fight for you, God told Joshua. You actually don't have to do much at all. You just have to follow me and trust me. So there's a lot of spying and back and forth over the Jordan River. And then Jordan took two and a half weeks for us to cross the Jordan. Thank you, Jordan, for leading us across that river. Uh, And that place was a place of God's power and a place of remembrance of God's power. And then we saw... Uh, that God fought the battle of Jericho, or as Jordan told us, that Joshua kids did not fight the battle of Jericho, 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 but God fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. And he commanded the people, after they, after they had won that battle, to not take anything, not take anything of the plunder. This very first battle was to be a time of complete and utter devotion to the Lord. All in that city was to either be destroyed or committed to God. And so last week, Jordan showed us that this was very much a new Garden of Eden test. In this very first battle in the land, it's almost as if the people are in a new, in the beginning, in the beginning of Genesis 1, in the beginning of living in the land with God, would God's people here in Jericho, here now in the land, would would God's people trust him and obey? Would they trust him and obey to not take anything that they found there in Jericho. There's nothing evil about fruit in the Garden of Eden. There's nothing evil about gold or fancy coats. Nor was in Genesis 3 or in here in Joshua 6 and 7 was God tempting his people. He wasn't tempting his people in either scenario, but he was testing them. Like we thought about before with testing, like when a teacher who has drilled and taught his students over and over and over again of expected behavior, and then the teacher chooses to be like intentionally two minutes late to class to like peer through the window and see, will the children take what I have taught them and obey on their own? Will they take this instruction from their heads to their hearts? Will they take this opportunity to let the rules nestle down and actually become life? And all of Israel here in Jericho passes the test, a passing of the test which will unleash the blessing of God on them and on the land, except that one man and his family didn't. Achan, just like Eve, saw things that were pleasing to the eye. He coveted them and he took. And by doing so, his individual sin brought communal and even national cursing from God. We thought about the reality that all sin has horizontal consequences and effects. There is no such thing as isolated and individual sin. So, not knowing what Achan had done, the people of Israel move on from Jericho and they attack the next military outpost, a much smaller fortress called Ai. And unbelievably, after all that they have seen God do and all of the victories that they have experienced, unbelievably, coming up on this little tiny fortress of Ai, the people lose in chapter 7. And before they 
But before they move on in victory, what, before they can win that battle, they must confront sin. It must be dealt with. And so Achan continues to hide his sin and hide his sin and hide his sin, only confessing it at the very last second after he has been publicly found out. And he and his complicit family are executed for this, as Joshua puts it, this outrageous sin. Why is it so outrageous that he took these coats and gold Achan's high-handed and deliberate ignoring of God's commandments are what's causing him and inviting this justice upon himself. And so he and his family are devoted to destruction just as Jericho was. So here's where we are. The people have moved on from Jericho and lost a battle of Ai, now having to confront this sin with Achan. And, but now they must be thinking, like Adam and Eve, will the rest of the campaign of taking the land, will the rest of the thing be ruined forever because of the sin of Achan? Will God, like he did with Adam and Eve, turn his people around and send them back out to the east, out of the land of his presence? Spoiler alert, no, he will not. So in three parts tonight, we're going to see that God actually renews his people by grace. God renews his people by grace. We're going to ask of of Joshua 8 three questions. First, how does God return to his people? Second, how does God oppose his enemies? And third, how does God renew his people? How does he return to his people, oppose his enemies, and renew his people? So first of all, how does God return to his people? Just the first two verses here. Since I had Shannon begin reading in verse 10, let's read these first two verses here together. So in verse 1, we read, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. And arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So, Ai. Literally, this word means the ruin. It may or may not have been called Ai or the ruin at the time that Joshua is attacking it. It may have been later given that name and referred to it because, again, spoiler alert, what's about to happen? It's going to become a ruin. It's a fortress. It's not much of a city, but it's a military outpost that protects the neighboring Bethel. But back to Jericho. This, this scene right here that we're reading here in Joshua 8.1, this scene might be like the night of or the morning after the execution of Achan. Maybe Joshua is sitting there thinking, what in the world just happened? If nothing else, it must have been emotionally distracting or causing him distress. It's very sad and discouraging. A well-known and respected man from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah Achan comes from, the tribe of Judah from which, as Jacob once, like five centuries ago, prophesied that from that tribe would come God-honoring kingly rule and justice. Now that tribe has brought dishonor to God because Achan rejected God's rule. So maybe that night after that execution or the morning after Joshua is sitting there thinking by himself, he's just, will God be for us? In chapter one, he told me to be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But all of that was before all of this, all of this sin and messiness, sadness and loss. But in chapter eight, Verse 1, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. And Joshua must have thought, thank goodness, he has not left us. He has come again to me, he has come again to us. 
Now, the truths of Isaiah 59, which will come many centuries later, are absolutely true that where God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. All of those things are true. The sin of Achan had brought separation between God and his people, and the wages of sin is death. That is what our sin earns, death. High-handed sin against an eternally good and holy God earns justice. High treason earns high justice. But God, having paid justice for sin, he doesn't consider Achan to be like this Adam-like covenant head, like the fountainhead of all things, of all curse or blessing, that whatever Achan does will affect the rest of the people for all of time. Achan is actually well downstream of God's blessing and curse. He is extremely downstream. And so now that his corrupting high-handedness is out of the stream altogether, even though that sin for a time created curse for the, for the, for the people, God says, let's begin again. Let's begin again. And so in 1b, the second half of verse 1, take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. He tells them what to do. Cause or set an ambush against it. And when I deliver this city to you, unlike Jericho, this time you can take whatever is there. Here's the saddest part about the Achan story. If he just obeyed God at Jericho, then he would have gotten all that he wanted at Ai. He was like Esau, led by his immediate appetite to disregard God's word and trade in future blessing for an immediate bowl of porridge, for one or a couple of garments and a couple of pieces of gold in Jericho. Like Esau, Achan considered the momentary filling of his stomach, his appetite, to be of greater importance than the rest of his life. Just like Adam and Eve, Esau was convinced that a temporary filling of what he saw and wanted was better than eternal blessing. Adam and Eve were convinced that their appetite was a more reliable guide to satisfaction and happiness. Esau, just like them, were convinced that their appetites were more trustworthy in telling them what they really wanted and what they really needed, more reliable than the promises of God's word. I'm glad we could never be that dumb and short-sighted. Could never be that dumb and short-sighted as Adam and Eve and as Esau and as Achan to see something wanted and take it rather than trusting God that something better is behind it. Here, God now gives the people the food and the riches of AI, proving a principle that is just as true for us today. Not necessarily, not that good things come to those who wait. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes we wait and wait and wait patiently, and God doesn't give the thing that we wanted. But it proves the principle that trusting God is always the surest way to provision and contentment. Again, not just obey God and he'll give you everything that you want, but that trust and obey the Lord and your desires will actually become his desires. You will begin to want the things that he wants, and he will give you those things. That what you thought you wanted, led by your appetites and what was immediately in front of you, were actually pointers towards something deeper, something more lasting of living and dwelling with God. The answer cannot just be to Adam and Eve, to Esau, to Achan, to you and to me, stop indulging your appetites. It won't work. 
I'm sure that wouldn't have convinced any of them. It doesn't convince us. The answer must be to first understand that indulging those appetites aren't keeping their promises. So as C.S. Lewis once wrote, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. When we are not satisfied by the thing that we thought that we wanted, that's not the thing that we wanted. That takes self-reflection. Because here's the thing, God didn't just bring Israel out of Egypt to save them from hard work. He did not bring Israel out of Egypt just to give them a life of ease. If you were with us a few years ago when we went through the book of Exodus, maybe you'll remember that God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh over and over and over again to let my people go. Why? So that they could have a free and awesome life to do whatever they wanted to? No, let my people go so that they may serve me. God wants to take his people out of service to false gods and to masters and into service of a true and a good and benevolent master, out of one service and into another, out of a death-causing service into a life-giving service. God wants to take his people out of these false gods, of the bondage of false gods, and into the freedom of the true God. All people in every scenario, in every time, in every place, are in service to something, are worshiping something. We are created to be a worshiping people, and so we do. Even if you are not a Christian, you are a worshiper. In every moment of your life, you, me, we are worshiping something, some person, some idea. God desires to rescue people out of the bondage to worshiping the self, to worshiping limited, weak desires that do not keep their promises, and then to free us into deeper service, to free us into service to God, to worship Him. And so this is how God returns to His people. He returns to His people first in justice, in justice of bringing the consequences of Achan's sin to bear on Him and for the nation. But in promise to the covenant that He has made to give His people a a place that he might live with them, that he might dwell with them in peace, that they might serve him and worship him, that they might have their desires met beyond their immediate appetites and in the knowledge of him, he comes to them in justice, but then in new grace. I have not forgiven my or forgotten my covenant to you. I have come to you in faithfulness to my covenant. So he comes to Joshua anew. So, How does he come to return to his people? With justice, but with grace. But now, we've already seen, I think you might know the answer to the second question. How does God oppose his enemies? We've already seen this throughout the book of Joshua. We've seen that further back than that. Seen that with Pharaoh. We've seen that with Jericho. We've seen that with Achan. But now let's see it with Ai, the ruin. If God returns to his people in justice and overcomes their cosmic sin with justice, but with new grace, that he might dwell with them. How does God oppose his enemies? In verses 3 to 29, how does God oppose his enemies? Let me do some summarizing of what comes next. You heard uh, Shannon read some of this, but what Joshua does next is like every single battlefield movie that is out there. There's like a classic ruse, an ambush, like you see in The Patriot or in The Last of the Mohicans or The Last Samurai, or even in ship movies like uh, The Master and Commander. Shoot, even Return of the Jedi has one of these. Now, you can almost imagine one of the guys in the army of AI, like, looking back at the city on fire, and he's like, it's a trap! 
He, like, this is classic military ambush. There is a main gate to the city on the north side, the most vulnerable part. So again, with some summary here, because there's some confusing back and forth parts with some of these numbers, but Joshua takes the main force of Israel, a huge army out to the north of the city, and then a smaller elite group of men camped out to the west of Ai, behind the city. They're in hiding. And the next morning, as the huge main camp approaches the gate, Ai looks out over the walls, and they're, they've got to be like brimming with confidence. Like, maybe just a week or two before this, they're like, hey, we've done this before with this group of losers. We heard these people and their God were powerful and dreadful. So much for that. A bunch of rumors and lies. They supposedly plundered Egypt. They leveled Jericho. They ain't got nothing on us. They supposedly crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan. I don't see it. We're amazing and awesome, and their God is weak. We beat them once, and we'll beat them again. So they leave the fortress completely empty to go likely outnumbered, smash these weak Israelites. And let me read again what happens next. Verse 15. In Joshua, and all Israel Israel pretended to be beaten before them, and they fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So that when the men of Ai looked back, it's a trap! Behold, the smoke of the city went out up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. A couple of interesting things here, and then we'll again need to touch on, like we likely will every week, the violence that we read and encounter here. But when God tells Joshua to stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, this sounds familiar to when God over and over and over again told Moses to stretch out his staff. Moses carried a staff, the shepherd leading his people out toward a place of green pastures. Here, Joshua carries a javelin, the warrior leading his people in battle that they might take the place of green pastures. And I think we're meant to be reminded of Exodus 17. Do you remember that? When Israel is fighting the Amalekites, and God tells Moses to hold up his arms, and as long as he's holding up his arms, then Israel will win the battle. And as he gets tired, Joshua and Aaron hold his arms up, and Israel defeats the Amalekites. He's holding up his arms over Israel. But maybe even more than that, this scene, I think, is meant to recall another scene where Moses held up his staff over the Red Sea that Israel might pass through And then, in something kind of like a rused ambush, the Egyptians. And here, the people of Ai are overwhelmed by the judgment of God. Stories of the judgment of God against a people who oppose him. In Egypt, in Jericho, in Ai. Stories of God bringing his people to reign and rule, establishing a kingdom of justice, of righteousness, of law, of holiness. And we see over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament that when individual people or when entire cities or nations set themselves against this kingdom of God, this kingdom of righteousness, God sets himself against them. 
Remember what we said from chapter 1 for Rahab in Jericho and for others like her, this was not invasion that Israel was participating in here. It was liberation. Liberation from a wicked and unjust society of oppression and violence. And so it's on cities or societies like Egypt or Amalek or Jericho or Ai that God judges. War has been said, if you make war against God, he will make war against you. Societally, or even as we've seen with Achan, individually, if you make war against God, he will make war against you. Now, much has changed on this side of the cross, primarily because God has covenanted himself not with one ethnic people of one nation, as in this time, but a people of all nations. Not a people who worship in a geographic strip of land under a God-mandated law for all who live then under its borders, but a people now who worship across geographic borders as exiles. We are all bound together in local embassies, in local outposts called churches. These embassies are embassies of our actual home nation, not this strip of land or this physical geographic land that we find ourselves living into or in today, but in our actual home, the kingdom of heaven. We are making appeals not to coercion under the law, but primarily appeals to the conscience under Christ. But nevertheless, here, God is absolutely bringing judgment against his enemies. If they will make war against God, he will make war against them. Physical, actual war. Does this sound weird to us? Does it sound barbaric? Of death and of violence, of bloodshed. I'm overwhelmingly thankful to live where and when we do in both this side of the cross, but in a society of relative nation-state peace. There is much violence that we people as as Americans can encounter on a day-to-day level, but at a nation-state level, we live, we don't experience here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a threat of a foreign invader. But we should also be aware of ways in which the things that sound and feel strange to us would not feel sound sound or feel strange to most of humans in all of history, in all of, in most societies. The fact that the king of Ai, we haven't read this yet, but the king of Ai is killed and then hung up on a tree. He's hung up on a tree, presumably just out the city gate. Reading something like that in the Bible feels so weird, so backward, so barbaric and over the top, but it would not sound weird or barbaric to 99% of the humans who have ever lived. People of every culture and of every time have instincts that they assume must be universally or morally right. We have instincts the same as Israel, the same as Ai. And we, just like Israel and the people of Ai, must be willing to be self-critical of our instincts based on then what God says. For instance, many today in the West argue that self-expression, that tolerance are two of the greatest values or virtues that we can pursue individually or societally. And yet, most people outside of like the northwest quadrant of the globe would reject those values, instead not highlighting the self, but the community. Not tolerance, but justice. I'm not arguing that everything is relative, but that many, if not most of what we value, comes through cultural value systems. We value what our culture tells us to value. Tim Keller was especially helpful here. He wrote this one time in a a book on preaching. 
Keller wrote this, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings, this Anglo-Saxon warrior. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now, imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look and think about the aggression. This is not who I want to be. And I will seek deliverance in therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, this is who I am. Now, all this experiment does is to show that our inner desires and our inner values and our societal values are not universally dependable, not trustworthy, but that we, we need moral guidance from the outside, externally, but also that what we think is good, right, and just actually just comes from our culture. With both the Anglo-Saxon warrior and the Manhattan man, they are actually not just choosing to be themselves. They are, quote, filtering their feelings. They are jettisoning some and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them that they may be. And so it's just interesting that we, a culture that supposedly valued tolerance above all else like 10 or 15 years ago, now values justice above all else. Have you seen this move? That those who think or speak, speak wrongly must be squashed must be eliminated. And while public executions and like hanging people on trees may still seem strange to us, it takes about five seconds on Twitter to see death threats, literal death threats from people on the cultural left and the cultural right against those whom they deem to be acting or speaking unjustly. We have longings and expectations of justice. Every human does. Every human has a longing and expectation for justice, for the putting of wrongs to right. It's Christianity, though, as we'll see in a moment, that I'm convinced gives the best possible answer to that longing for justice. But Joshua here is very clear that Israel is doing just as God has asked them to do. And in taking the king's body down from the tree before sundown, they are aware of and they are obeying Deuteronomy 21:23. They are obeying the law that they are not to leave bodies exposed overnight. We'll come back to that in chapter 10. But verse 29 tells us that they took the king who high-handedly opposed God, despite, as Jordan told us last week, despite the reports of the greatness and the glory of the character of God that he had heard about, he had set himself against God in indifference and in opposition. And so his fate ends in chapter 8 the exact same way that Achan's fate ended in chapter 7, buried under a great heap of stones. It doesn't matter if you are aware of and in the midst of God's people, knowing and trusting in the promises of God, or you've never heard of him, but uh, just still hate him and hate his people. When you set your face against the Lord, he will set his face against you. 
And so this man, this king, is buried under a great heap of stones, which Joshua tells us stands there to this day, which obviously just means, when we read this, uh, the day on which this account was written. Not necessarily that that heap of stones stands to this day, the day that we're living. And so how does God return to his people? The question we first ask, with justice. Justice against Achan. How does God oppose his enemies? With justice. Those who oppose him, he will oppose. And so now thirdly, how does God renew his people? With grace. With grace. This third point, verses 30 through 35, since Shannon didn't read this, let me just read this for us here, starting in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not one word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. All right, so if you know the geography, which none of us really do, we might expect now that as Israel has taken out, Jovan, you got this next screen. This is a terribly, this resolution is awful on this. Can you see this? Uh, just at the bottom, the Dead Sea, just to the north of that is Jericho, and then just to the west of Jericho is Ai. You might expect, after Israel has conquered these two cities, that if you know this valley, uh, that they might sweep south they might sweep down and take all the good and rich fertile land, this mostly unprotected valley. But that's not what they do. They turn and they go about 25 miles north and a little bit to the east. If you see this little gray area, these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Verse 31 makes it sound like the thing that Moses commanded the people to do was to someday make an altar of uncut stones, somewhere for some reason. But this entire scene, when we read that this is what Moses had commanded the people to do, this entire thing, including the trip up to Mount Ebal and Gerizim, is exactly what Moses had commanded the people to do in Deuteronomy 7. Back when they were in the wilderness, on the east side of the river, Moses told the people, when you get to the land, when you're finally there and have just a little bit of breathing room, go to Mount Ebal, go to Mount Gerizim, and read the law. Repeat there the blessings and the cursings of the law. So here now, Joshua is leading the people to do all that Moses had told them to one day do. Here's a picture. Giovanni, you got a next one? This is a modern day picture of Mount Ebal on the left and Mount Gerizim on the right. They're basically right next to each other with the town of Shechem in the valley between. But here is what Moses told them to do back in the book of Deuteronomy. And what is exactly what they do do here in Joshua 8. Half of the priests are to go up to Mount Ebal. And half of the priests are to go to Mount Gerizim. One of the halves is to read all of the blessings. 
over on the left side, the, the half the priests are to read all of the blessings. If you will obey all of this, this is what God will do for us as his people. This, 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 and this. And then after they're finished, then the other half of the priests are to read all of the cursings. When we disobey, or if we disobey, this is what God will do. This, 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 and this. And then, here in Joshua 8, they do that. Then Moses, or Joshua writes a copy of all the law, and they're basically renewing the covenant. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. They are hearing again the law in its absolute entirety, and they are choosing to remain in covenant with God. They are choosing to live their lives as lives of national, consecrated worship to God. And notice who is here. Verse 33. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, meaning Rahab is here. She is now married into the tribe of Judah. Rahab is here, Achan is not. Two people now associated with the tribe of Judah forever. But you will also not just notice that all Israel is here, but notice all the rest of the alls. Verse 33, all Israel. Verse 34, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly. This section might be summarized as all the people of God must give all obedience to all the word of God. This is very universal in its scope. They are renewing their intentions to live fully and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy before God, with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind to live as God's people. Last Wednesday, I was having lunch with a couple of you guys, and we were talking about what we had read that week in Mark's gospel, and we were struck by the seriousness of the call to discipleship of Jesus. That unlike the rich young ruler, Jesus wants his people, his disciples, to go all in, to push all their chips in, in following him. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us will quit our jobs, that all of us will go into full-time ministry, become a pastor or a serving in some ministry here in town or going overseas as a missionary. But what that does mean that in, for all of us, in everything that we do, Jesus gets a say in it. That he is the Lord and God over it all, that there are no locked rooms in our lives. There's not one locked room in a, a disciple of Jesus that Jesus doesn't get the master skull key, that he can open every room and just say, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, I want it all. Not because he needs it, because he wants to give, that he wants to free us from one service to suit to another. Here's the problem, that while we can, perhaps in our spiritually lucid moments, when we're meeting with members of our church, with Bibles open, and we can say, yes, all of it. Lord Jesus, I'm all in. Take me. I will follow. And while the good news is that for maturing Christians, that is more and more true of our lives. But how many of us, how many of us would be cool with, like if there was like a TSA checkpoint over here at this door, and we had to walk through but instead of this TSA checkpoint, the detectors aren't looking for like metal or explosives or something, but each of us had to walk through this spiritual x-ray machine. As one walked through, 
We might be thinking, oh, I guess Jesus has all of him. Oh, I guess she is worshiping God with all of her whole heart, strength, soul, and mind. No, like none of us would ever come to church. None of us. We'd all stay home. It would be terrifying. None of us would ever come to be with each other. None of us would ever come to Christ. Why? Because we are double-minded. We worship and we long for and we love different things aside from God. We are worshipers of the self. We are coveters of others. We would be mortified and we would melt away if others could see what we actually long for. If others could see what we are angered by. If others could see what we most want. We would hear the words of blessings and cursings based on our obedience and based on our disobedience and we would be terrified terrified by the curses we're standing down here in the valley of shechem and hearing the priests call blessings and cursings for obedience and disobedience and say, i got nothing man it's all bad news except that for those who come to mount gerizim come to mount Ebal, the place of curse and blessing. How is their blessing? The people are consecrated. They are trying to voice their wholehearted obedience to the Lord, but there is still corruption to the, in the heart. There is still corruption in their longings and their desires. There's more Achans there in the people. Time will show. So how is their blessing? What else is here? What else is here at Mount Ebal and at Mount Gerizim? There's an altar of uncut stones. There's an altar, a place of burnt offering, a place of peace offering, a place of worship, a place of death. But guess now, think through here. Any guess on which mountain the altar was put? Is it put on Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing, or is it put on Mount Ebal, the place of cursing? Put on Mount Ebal. From its very institution, the law had a built-in contingency plan for failure. We saw over and over again in Exodus and Leviticus that as the law is given, there are interspersed commands. As the law is giving, God just knows what his people are going to do. God knows the heart of his people. And so as he's giving the law of expectations for obedience and holiness, he's giving them the contingency plan for sacrifice. For when the law is inevitably not kept, and here on Mount Ebal, amidst the cursing for disobedience, is an altar of uncut stones, or as one commentator describes it, the complete negation of humanism. These people are just to walk around and find some rocks just as they are, stack them up, and then trust that the Lord will accept these peace offerings, which he does. There is nothing of this altar of human ingenuity or effort only trust in what God has promised, to forgive, to redeem, to save, to renew, and to keep his covenant. To not look at the spiritual x-ray and see all that is in here, but to see what is on the altar and accept his people thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. The sad part about these mountains is that these mountains keep appearing throughout the Old Testament, and the people seem to have forgotten its purpose. We see Jesus. Javon, you want to go back to that picture of the two mountains? We see Jesus right here. This is, this is where Jacob's well is at the, in the city of town of Shechem. 
Anybody remember a scene in the gospel accounts at Jacob's well? John 4, where Jesus finds a Samaritan woman at the well, and along with the many things that he confronts in her, including pushing past her appetites, pushing past her insecurities to show her that what she has actually longed for is him, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing that we were desiring. He pushes beyond that, and he pushes her for worshiping at the place of Samaritan worship, right here at Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans have built this temple on Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing, the mountains of blessing for obedience. They are worshiping at the place of obedience and righteousness and of blessing. Not, they are not worshiping, they are not sacrificing at Mount Ebal, the place of weakness and of need, not the place of substitution and of sacrifice, but they are worshiping at the place of their own effort, of their own merit. But we are the same way. Not those stupid Samaritans. Oh, you stupid people. All of us. They're just doing what we all do. What the older son in the parable of the prodigal son does. Of trusting in our own righteousness to get close to the Father. That when you worship at the place of humanism, of obedience, of righteousness, and of blessing, you are worshiping at a place of optimism and of naivete. We're so naive to think that our lives are wonderfully awesome and acceptable before the Lord. Of an over or unrealistic overconfidence in your own purity and your own effort. It ain't real. It's not good enough. It never has been and it never will be. We are people of divided hearts, worshiping ourselves in all other things. You guys, it's all grace. It's all grace of coming to a place of the complete negation of humanism. I don't have it. I never will. I never have. And I cannot measure up to the Lord's holiness. I can't even measure up to my own expectations that I put on myself. On the world, would I, why in the world would I keep trying and keep trying and keep trying to humanistically earn both the acceptance of the Lord and of my own? It can't happen. It won't happen. Because where these two mountains point ultimately is to another mountain where Jesus would become both the place of blessing and of curse. Where these two mountains come like this. Where he, the day after passing his own test in a garden of trusting God instead of his own appetites or his own instincts for survival, instead of like Eve or like Achan, seeing and coveting his own glory as a thing to be held on to or grasped after. Instead, he poured himself out, out of love for God and out of love for you. Receiving the curse for your disobedience that you might receive the blessing of his obedience. See from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? No, never. Not here in Joshua 8, not after, not in our own lives, but there on the cross. Yes, this love, this salvation, this grace for a bunch of spiritual losers like you and me. That is what can transform his people. His people from losers to heirs. From self-worship to God-worship. From vindictive, self-promoting justice to generous, others-promoting justice. From hate to love. From impurity to purity. From the unholiness of the heart of man to the holiness of the heart of God. So the question, 
Here in Joshua 8, we're at the end of the Gospels as Jesus hangs on the cross and then rises to resurrection glory. The question for all of us in any time and in any place is will we come to him for blessing and curse? Your sins will be exposed. A spiritual x-ray machine exists for us all. But unlike Achan, do not wait until it is too late. Do not wait until there is no hope for you. There is hope today in the Lord Jesus who would walk through the spiritual x-ray machine on your behalf and show nothing but righteousness. And if you, like Israel, who are walking and fighting in faith, actually wanting more of God, more of more faith, will you come even to this meal tonight? This place as like a covenant renewal ceremony. This is like a Joshua 8 weekly renewal of the covenant, of reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God to his people and a weekly reminder to ourselves, yes, I still love you, Lord. I have failed you in my unrighteousness, but I want more. I have come to you in faith before for the forgiveness of sins, and I will keep coming to you today, next week, for the rest of my life, for the forgiveness of sins and for the transformation of my whole heart, soul, and mind. This meal weekly is coming to the Lord and saying, take all of me, take it all. Every room of my life for you have given all of you. I want more. Let's come to this table today. Those of us who have come before in covenant with the Lord Jesus of what he has done on our behalf with new and renewed confidence and faith on what he has done and not what we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your faithfulness to your covenant, for your faithfulness to your promises that you will indeed throw our sins into the bottom of the sea so deep that they cannot be found again or pulled back up to be able to accuse us anymore. Father, we pray that for those of us who are still attached to their sins, that their sins are pulling them like anchors under the water that they might be free tonight, that they might come to Christ and be set free from bondage to life. Bondage from one service to freedom into another. God, might we as your people, for those of us who are in covenant with you, might we as your people recognize and realize more and more the freedom of serving you, the freedom of being your servants, of living in your kingdom. Might we be more and more self-critical of our instincts. Might we be more and more aware of how our desires point us to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your presence. One thing that we would ask of you, that we might dwell in your presence and see you in your holy temple. This is what we want. Fill our vision, fill our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com